Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church. We're a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for listening to our podcast. There's a few links in the podcast description. If you're looking to get connected, just fill out the Google form or shoot me an email. I would love to help you experience Renew as a family of God. We also have our PayPal giving link if you want to invest in this church community. Because of your generous giving, Renew is able to be a mission team to the city and care for people with special needs, mentoring at-risk youth, and support kids in the foster system. Lastly, subscribe to this podcast and scroll back to listen through the whole book of Matthew and other books of the Bible we've already preached through. This week, we're finishing up our Matthew series as Pastor Dave walks through the crucifixion of Christ and how an unexpected interruption in Simon's life alters it forever. As usual, Pastor Dave's historic scholarship is exceptional. I'm a huge fan of his work. Enjoy. All right. Good afternoon. If you, do, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll look at the Word of God uh, this afternoon. Matthew chapter 27. History has called it the most brutal, the most barbaric, the most evil form of execution that has ever been devised and developed by human beings. The great first century Roman statesman Cicero said that it was the cruelest, most shameful of all punishments. Let it never touch the body of a Roman citizen. No, let it never come near his eyes, nor his ears, nor even in his thoughts. Let it never ever even be whispered in the company of a citizen's woman or children. He was referring to the criminal's punishment of crucifixion. But you know, we have a different perspective this afternoon. We can praise God for the crucifixion. We can look beyond this horrific form of execution to something far different, to something that actually gives us hope and joy. And I want us to look at the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah, and yes, it does represent the darkest event in all of human history. And yes, it does remind us of when Jesus, the Son of God, was murdered on a cross. And although we are dealing with the darkest night, I want us to see that this event shines brightest for us as Christians. I want to praise God for the cross. And we can lift our heads high and express gratitude for the crucifixion because it was there that the plan of salvation was perfectly achieved. And so let's focus on one important truth this afternoon, that at the cross, God's sovereignty was shown. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's precious. That at the cross, God's sovereignty was shown. Now you might say, what is sovereignty? Well, it's the fact that God is in charge of everything. That God is in control of everything that comes to pass. You know, there are so many people today who have a false impression that Jesus was some helpless, hapless victim of a failed plan. That he was like Spartacus who desired revolution. He desired to do something great. He planned to succeed, but in the end, he failed miserably and found himself disillusioned on a Roman cross. But was Jesus like Spartacus? Is that how we should view 
the crucifixion. In Acts chapter 2, if we would look at that, verses 22, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and he says this, follow along with me, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Did you get what Peter was saying? That Jesus' death was not an accident. It was not a failed plan. Evil and ignorant people may have murdered him, but the cross was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You know, the triune God sovereignly devised this plan of redemption. And I want us to see three truths, three things in God's sovereignty at the cross. You see, God's sovereignty was shown in a life transformed by the cross. If you're taking notes, that's my first point. God's sovereignty was shown, number one, in a life transformed by the cross. Let's look in verse 32. And then they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, why? Why did they force a passerby to carry the cross? And it's because Jesus couldn't carry it. It was procedure for a condemned criminal to carry their crossbeam to their crucifixion. But Jesus was so beaten, so flogged, so tortured, and we studied that in our past lesson. He had lost so much blood that he was weakened by all the abuse that he had uh, taken, and so he couldn't carry the cross. And so the Roman soldiers, impatient to get him on the cross, found this guy Simon and forced him to do it. And by the way, Roman legionaries had absolute authority to conscript, uh, to conscript whoever they found to do their bidding. So who? Who was he? Well, the Bible says that he was Simon who came from a region called Cyrene. Now, this was in North Africa, in modern-day Libya or Tunisia in that area. And scholars have shared that it's highly likely that Simon was a person of color. And that's why most media uh, in TV or in movies about Jesus portray Simon this way. If he was a person of color, he was North African, then he was probably a proselyte to the Jewish faith, much like the Ethiopian eunuch was in Acts. Here, he was in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Remember, this was one of the biggest holy days for the Jewish people. And so Jerusalem at this time would have seen pilgrims from all around the world descend to be a part of the festivities. So Simon's plan was to engage in the Passover. His plan was to participate. But as he passed by that morning, he was probably confused that someone would be executed on the morning of Passover. I mean, no one gets crucified at Passover. It's a time of celebration. So this was unthinkable. And as he probably looked on very curious, all of a sudden, he feels strong hands grab his shoulder. He hears a rough voice, maybe a profanity-laden voice, command him to carry the cross. Now imagine how this man must have felt. Simon's life was interrupted. Let me ask you, have you ever been interrupted before? And you would have to say yes, especially during this COVID-19 quarantine. 
And let me share with you, it has been really a frustrating experience for me because I'm an extrovert. I love to be around people. I enjoy uh, having lunch and dinner and hanging out with friends and even people from our church. I really miss you guys. And so it has been so restrictive and so uncomfortable to have to deal with these things. And again, this whole thing with you know, um, uh, doing sermons online and doing worship has been very uncomfortable, I'm sure, for you as well. And so we've had to deal with these things. Uh, I've had to scrap so many of my plans, so many things that I've wanted to do. And I've had to actually scrap the plans we had as a family to go to Japan and Korea. We were really looking forward to it. We had planned it, and now we're not even uh, able to go. So, of course, being interrupted is not fun. But, as, but I've noticed, though, that this interruption has really reordered my personal life. Uh, it has given me a surprise sabbatical. I've never had a sabbatical before in my entire life, and then God forces one. And I've really, really been able to grow uh, personally in my spiritual life during this time. And so I don't want to go into detail. Of course, there's so much there. But I've used this time as a personal reordering. Now, that might not be you. As a matter of fact, this time of interruption may be even uh, more harsh for you. And I'm sure if you've lost your jobs or if something has happened uh, that has taken away your livelihood, I'm sure that this has not been a pleasant time at all. This has been very difficult, and I want to be sensitive to that. But let me share with you, when our life gets interrupted, it is restricting to one degree or another. It's very uncomfortable. And here Simon's life was abruptly interrupted. He was caught completely off guard. He was even probably shocked and resentful that he had to do this. This wasn't on his agenda. This wasn't scheduled in his planner. He probably felt that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We don't like to be interrupted with hard surprises. We don't want to be conscripted into unpleasant situations. Can I share with you, Christian? That's precisely when we need to remember that we have a sovereign God who is in control of our lives. He has a plan that he's working out. Maybe we don't see it. Maybe all we see is the hardships and the difficulties, but he is working something for good. And all of your isolation and your interruptions and your conscriptions are a part of that. As hard as it, as, hard as it is to say, if there's one thing that the Lord wants to teach us through Simon, it's trust his plan when you don't understand. Let me say that again. That's good. Trust his plan when you don't understand. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Now what? What happened? Well, can I share with you this? Christian history tells us that Simon wasn't just conscripted, but he was converted that the cross encounter that he had led to his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Isn't that beautiful? Now, if it stopped there, that would be enough, but it doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, if we look in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, which is a companion, right, to Matthew chapter 27, and here Mark gives us a little bit more about what happened. In verse 21 of chapter 15, it says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, I want you to remember that in Mark's gospel, Mark is writing to the Romans. 
So he wants to let the church in Rome, who doubtless would be reading this gospel, to know that Simon who carried Jesus' cross, oh yeah, by the way, that was the dad of Alexander and Rufus, whom you guys are already close to. What Mark is saying here is he's saying he wants you to know that Simon's family were leaders in the Roman church. You see, Simon was saved gloriously, but it wasn't just Simon. We see here in Mark's gospel that there was so much more. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 16, and verse 13, Paul greets Rufus, the same Rufus that's talked about here in Mark 15. He greets Rufus and Rufus's mom, and he says, she's like my mom, as key people and key leaders in the church at Rome. Isn't that awesome? Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, one of the church fathers, in his letter to the Philippians, mentions in retrospect that Rufus was a dear bishop in the church of Spain. Isn't that amazing? Rufus, that's found in Mark, is also found in Romans, is also found to be the ch- bishop of the church in Spain. You see, Paul wasn't just conscripted, he was converted. And he wasn't just converted, his family was converted. They became key leaders in the church in Rome, and later Simon's son becomes a bishop, a key leader in the church in Spain. What happened? Spiritual legacy happened, all from an interruption at the cross. You see, that is the sovereignty of God at work. Inpatient racist soldiers decided to grab a guy off the street and force him to carry the cross. But it is God who providentially brings Simon face to face with Jesus and his cross, which leads not only to his salvation, but also the salvation of his whole family. You see, God is absolutely in control of interruptions. God's sovereignty was shown, number one, in a life transformed by the cross. Number two, God's sovereignty was shown in an inscription placed on the cross. Let's look in verse 37. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, it was the Roman custom to have the reason for a crime inscribed above the crucified individual's head. And Jesus' reason, the Bible says, was that he was king of the Jews. Now, as you study the crucifixion, you can't help but notice divine fingerprints all over the place. Fingerprints behind the scenes. Fingerprints around every corner. Fingerprints in every circumstance. The religious leaders may have engineered the demise of Jesus through uh, fake trials and false witnesses. Pontius Pilate may have made the decision to execute Jesus on a whim, right? But in all of this, God's hand was working out his sovereign plan. I want you to look at John's gospel. It gives us more information on the inscription. If we could put John's gospel up, John chapter 19. Let's look at it in verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I want you to notice, 
Every Jew would have understood what this phrase, king of the Jews, meant. It wasn't talking about an earthly king in a long succession of earthly kings. This phrase, king of the Jews, referred to the eschatological Messiah that would usher in God's kingdom for all of eternity. This is what everybody would have known as they saw that sign. This sign in essence read, Jesus is the Messiah. And it's amazing when you realize that Pilate wrote this of his own free will. Yet you see God's sovereign hand behind every detail. The religious leaders were outraged. Why this inscription? It could have read Jesus the rebel, Jesus the madman, Jesus the insurrectionist, Jesus the blasphemer, Jesus the false king. As a matter of fact, they urged Pilate to write that he claimed that he was the king of the Jews. But what does Pilate say? I love it. Hey, what I've written, I've written. It wasn't Pilate writing this. This shows that God was behind this. He was sovereign, even down to the title placed on the cross. Let me give you an interesting perspective. It's food for thought on the sovereignty of God. Did you know that a non-Christian wrote the first gospel words about Jesus? This was the first gospel tract ever written, and it was written by Pontius Pilate. I want you to notice it's a gospel tract because Luke's gospel records someone gets saved from it. Luke 23, let's look at it in verse 38. There was, written, uh, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we're getting. Uh, we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, these two criminals read the gospel tract. One insulted him and said, you are not the Messiah. But the other trusted him and said, you are my Messiah. And the Bible says that he was given paradise. Amen? He was gloriously saved all because of that inscription. Pilate wrote it in three languages. In Aramaic, the language of the Jews living in the first century. In Latin, the language of the Romans who were the occupiers, who had built the empire. The language of the, uh, in Greek, sorry, the common trade language of the, of the uh, known world. Pilate writes the essence of the gospel in three languages. Why? To show you that Jesus is Messiah to the Hebrews, to the Gentiles, to the Roman Empire, to the whole world. That is the sovereignty of God at work. An unwilling, ungodly Roman procurator decides to hoist a king of the Jews sign on a condemned man and won't change it to spite the Jewish leaders. But it is God who providentially uses it to save a Sakari bandit and proclaim Jesus as Messiah for everyone to see. You see, God is absolutely in control of inscriptions. God's sovereignty was shown, number one, in a life transformed by the cross. Number two, in an inscription placed on the cross. And number three, in that sacrifice finished at the cross. You know, we have a picture of an old rugged cross that I want you to look at. Have you ever meditated on the suffering that Jesus endured on a Roman cross? Roman crucifixion was very different from today's executions. It was designed to be public. 
They were literally lifted up as a human billboard to say, don't mess with Rome. It was meant to leave a permanent impression on the mind psychologically. That the criminal would be humiliated in every way publicly so that you would get the message that you don't want to mess with Rome. It was designed to be public and it was designed to be painful. The process was an extreme, slow, agonizing process. The intent was to inflict the most suffering on a person publicly so that, again, you get the message, you don't mess with Rome. And here the Romans would take and pierce the wrist and ankles by pounding a five-inch five inch nails into them, pinning them to the cross. And the way people were positioned on the cross, the weight from their bodies, the gravity always pushed them down. The pectoral muscles were paralyzed, meaning that they could draw air into their lungs, but they couldn't get air out of their lungs. And so the person would have to push himself up to even exhale. Once, one person said it this way, they were constantly in motion to keep breathing so that they literally rubbed themselves raw up and down in order to breathe. Imagine the pain. The victim would finally die many times after excruciating, excruciating hours, even days. They would finally die of suffocation, being slowly asphyxiated. You see, the cross was suffering intensified, and Jesus endured the physical pain we just mentioned. But not only that, Jesus also endured the spiritual pain. The Bible says that he bore the sins of the world on himself, that he became sin for us who knew no sin. He actually became sin, bearing it. And not only did he endure that spiritual pain, he also endured emotional pain of being separated from the Father because of that sin. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was to fulfill prophecy, Isaiah or Psalm 22, but it was also the fact that he felt the anguish of being abandoned by God the Father because of the sin that he bore. God the Father turned his back on his son. He wouldn't he, he couldn't even look at it. And Jesus was willing to go to the cross for our fallen condition. He was willing to endure the weight of all of our sins. He bore all of it to be the sacrifice for you. You know, it's interesting that if you study the crucifixion, Jesus finally died around a little after 3 p.m. on Passover day. It was the ninth hour or a little after that. That would have been the same time that all the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. They were all being killed at that same time. And they had practiced it for thousands of years. What does this tell us? That these Passover lambs foreshadowed the prophesied Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 700 years before Jesus' crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be crucified. In Isaiah 53, look at it with me. Beginning in verse 5, it says, But Messiah, but he, Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, 
and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because Messiah poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow, 700 years before Jesus ever was crucified. Let's look at our text in verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is my favorite part. John's gospel gives us what Jesus actually said in a loud voice before he died. John chapter 19, look at it with me. In verse 28, it says, Knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked uh, a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, and here's the last words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The three most important words in human history, that on the cross, Jesus' last words before he died was, it is finished. So many un- misunderstand and they think that Jesus was just announcing to the people that were watching that he's about to die. I'm going to die now is what some people think. But if you're thinking that, you'd be wrong because the word that was used, the Greek word was the word tetelestai. It is finished is actually the Greek word tetelestai, which means something far deeper. It means my mission is completed. And this was the common word that was used in the first century. It was used by a servant when he came back home at the end of the day. Every assignment his master had given him is completed. And tired but satisfied, he would sigh, to tell us die. It is finished. I've completed all that the master has assigned me to do. It's used by the artist when she paints the last stroke of her masterpiece. Everything that she has painstakingly created is done. She proudly steps back and exclaims, to tell us die, it is finished. I've completed the work of my masterpiece. It's used by the athlete when she completes a grueling marathon. Every checkpoint has been passed. Every step has been endured. Exhausted, she would raise her hands and cry out, to tell us die, it is finished. I've completed the race that was set before me. It was used by the soldier after a brutal, hard-fought battle. He has successfully and definitively defeated the enemy. He places his foot on the neck of his foe and he roars, die! it's finished. I came, I fought, I conquered. It was used by the merchant as he puts down the last payment on his property. He has paid it in full. The building and the lot are his. Now he confidently proclaims to anyone who would listen, die! it is finished. This is my property. It's all mine and it's paid in full. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out to die in a loud voice, he completed all of those pictures. He was God's servant, obediently doing all the duties required of him. In Philippians 2.8, it says that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Jesus performed the Father's will by becoming a sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world. Number two, he was that prophetic artist who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, pictures, symbols, foreshadowings concerning himself. Jesus performed the masterpiece of salvation. 
Number three, he was the champion athlete who finished the race that was set before him. Jesus finished the work of salvation flawlessly so that we may benefit. Hebrews says we look to him as the champion and finisher of our faith. Number four, he was the victorious soldier who defeated sin, death, and hell. Jesus conquered them at the cross and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over all of this through his sacrifice. And number five, he was the redeemer merchant who entered the slave market of sin. And Jesus put down the full payment of his blood and bought us uh, from slavery to live with him in freedom. Isn't that beautiful? Now, let me ask you this. Was God the Father forever satisfied in the sacrifice of his son? If Jesus was the Passover lamb, if he was the one uh, that was predicted in Isaiah to come, was God satisfied? Did Jesus finish forever the work of salvation on the cross? Let's look in our text at verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At that moment, Jesus cried out to Telestai, and he died on Mount Golgotha, on a different mountain, on Mount Moriah, where the temple stood. The curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped in two. Now imagine this curtain, 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, a foot thick and seamless. It was a barrier that represented separation, separation of sinful man to a holy God. And here, God himself ripped that barrier to declare there is now no separation because of what Christ did on the cross. There are no more barriers because of Jesus' sacrifice. There is now access to him forever. You see, that is the good news. That is the new covenant that we see that at the cross, Jesus finished perfectly the work that he was assigned to do that he agreed to do, that he devised to do in that sacrifice finished at the cross. You see, when Jesus cried to tell us die, God's sovereign plan was accomplished. And that's the reason why we can praise God for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me ask you, this afternoon, what are you going through? Are you insecure at a jobless future? Are you insecure because of the things that are going on? Is there anxiety in your life because of the injustice, even the evil that you see all around you? I want to tell you this afternoon that we can be encouraged because God is absolutely in control of all things. He's in control of the interruptions. He's in control of the inscriptions. He's in control of everything that you may be going through. Man may make decisions and manipulate events. Trials of persecution may bring suffering. Solutions today may appear hopeless, but God is still on the throne. His invisible hand is still working things out for good. Our, uh, our responsibility is to trust him. Trust him in the interruptions. Trust him in the conscriptions. Trust him in the inscriptions. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to, I, I want to just pray for us before uh, we have uh, one last uh, amazing song. When you realize that God is so sovereign, you can praise him. And God, I praise you for the fact that your crucifixion doesn't end anything. It begins everything. 
And I pray that that would soak into our hearts because it is so needed at this hour. We pray that we would rejoice because of what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.